Hey everybody, welcome to Tonebenders. I am your host today. I am Timothy Meerhead. Renee is not here today, but don't worry, he'll be back very soon. Today, actually, the main host will be Teresa Morrow. You may recall her from our New York City trip episode, the last one. Uh, she recently went to the Hot Docs Film Festival, which, if you're not familiar with, is the largest documentary film festival in the world, and it takes place in Teresa and I's hometown of Toronto. And it's really an amazing festival. It kind of uh, takes over the whole city. We have two big film festivals. We have the Toronto International Film Festival, which is kind of the uh, more glamorous film festival where with all the big Hollywood premieres and all that. And then we have the Hot Docs Film Festival, which is kind of the more uh, workmanlike festival, I guess. It's uh, not everybody's in a tux at this festival, if you will. It's kind of uh, it's a really awesome festival, and I've had the luxury of doing sound for many films over the years that have uh, premiered or screened at it, uh, including this year. I had a film that I mixed this year in the festival. And Teresa went to see a movie called Resurrecting Hassan, and it blew her mind, melted her soul, and she thought... I've got to figure out how these guys did the sound for this film. So she immediately went up to the director who is in attendance, who she actually has met before and has some kind of, uh, has some mutual friends with, and asked if he'd be interested in being on the show. And he immediately said, yes, I would. And also, the location recordist and sound designer is here as well. Can he come on? And we were like, yes, he can. So today's guests are Carlo Proto, the director, and then uh, Pablo Viegas, who is uh, the location recordist, and also uh, did some sound design work on it. So Teresa sits down with them, and she kind of talks about the whole process of the film from uh, soup to nuts. Anyone wondering who these guys are, you may not have heard of them, but I have a feeling you're going to hear from them, because this interview is super interesting and uh, super compelling, and it's about making a documentary in a way that's different than doing the sound post for any other film we've interviewed people about. This is uh, on a lower budget. It's also uh, a passion project where uh, the director is also doing some sound design. And also it's with a director who is crazily enthusiastic about sound, which is super cool. Uh, when we explained to him the kind of podcast that this is, he was genuinely completely excited and his face just lit up with the idea of talking about the sound of the film because he's been doing this festival circuit with this film and uh, I guess he's been asked a million questions about the directorial and all that kind of stuff but no one's ever asked him about the sound for it before so he was super excited to get different questions than he normally gets. Uh, another quick note, we did this interview the day after it premiered at Hot Docs and uh, before the awards had been given out at the end of the festival, a few days later, and the film that we'll be talking about, Resurrecting Hassan, ended up winning the special jury prize, which is kind of the second biggest prize in the festival. So uh, it was a huge hit at the festival. It had my Facebook feed literally like lit up with people talking about this film uh, the day after it screened because it's a, a very affecting film. So it will be playing in the festival circuit. So if there are film festivals in your neighborhood, keep an eye out for it in the next few months and year. And uh, it's eventually going to get a theatrical release. And if it keeps winning awards like this, who knows? Fingers crossed. Uh, but find a way to go see this film, especially after you've heard us talking about it, because I think you're going to really like this talk. These are two really interesting guys who have a passion for sound. If you want to see the trailer for the film, you can go to our website, ToneBendersPodcast.com, and you can see the trailer for the film. And right now, I guess I'm going to throw it to Teresa to do the interview, so take it away, Teresa. 
I'm here with Carlo Proto, who's the director, producer, many other roles on a film I just saw yesterday, Resurrecting Hassan. And I'm also joined by Pablo Viegas, who was the sound recordist throughout the making of the film. And so welcome, guys. Thank you. Thank you. So happy to be here. Yeah. It's a really interesting film. It's a film that has a lot of interesting audio scenarios in it, I would say. Uh, but I think um, maybe uh, I would ask you to just start yeah. by giving us a, a context, a, explaining yeah, what it's explain about. Yeah, explain sure. what the film's about, yeah. I'll give you my pitch. <laughs> um, so essentially it's about a, a blind family of three that busk in the metros in Montreal and they lost their son, Hassan, 13 years ago. He uh, drowned in the hands of the municipal daycare system in Montreal, and uh, the family um, has recently gotten into this uh, Russian scientist mystic named Gregory Grabovoy, uh, who believes that we can regenerate our own organs. And the family wants to do the ultimate regeneration and resurrect Hassan from the dead. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, and it's a documentary. I always have to remind people of that after I give that synopsis or yeah. that sort of pitch, because... <laughs> That's the question. It's like, wait, so this is a documentary? Right. So, yeah, it's, it's a real, it's all it's very real. It's a real, real story. And, yeah, a pretty fascinating family portrait, I guess. Yeah, they're very special people. Yeah. Uh, as I understand it, you came to this story a long time ago. Yeah, I mean, I came to them as people a long time ago, about uh, 12 years ago at Concordia when I was in my first year. And I just moved to Montreal and I... Um, I heard them sing, and their voice um, was uh, was something like I'd never heard before. Denis' voice at that time was uh, at its prime. He uh, he was hitting uh, Mimi Ripperton notes. Um, it was just unbelievable, like things that I've heard Mariah Carey sing, and uh, they would just sing all these like Motown classics and all these sort of like contemporary songs. So just to clarify, Metro in Montreal is the subway. The subway, exactly. So you would just be mesmerized by going them. to and from, and you would uh, run into them at different stations. More, more the more so uh, as time passed on than just running into them. I would sit there for uh, at least a solid twenty minutes, sometimes to an hour, and just listen to I guess what would be their set. Uh, and I was really um, shy about approaching them because I was just so mesmerized by their voice and their presence and how they sang, and it, it was just incredible. And uh, I knew that there was like something special there, and I knew that I probably wasn't the first person who felt this way. And a year passed by, and I uh, decided to uh, find an excuse to talk to them and collaborate with them on my second-year film, um, where I gave each one of them a Super 8 camera and asked them to film what they wanted us, the audience, to see. And the sound treatment... Um, we, I did work it, but nowhere near as extensive as, uh, as Resurrecting Hassan. Uh, the, they essentially were into this other movement called The Secret, Rhonda Byrne, The Law of Attraction, Oprah Winfrey. Some of you may know what this thing is about. And I uh, started making this documentary. We had CTV funding, and then we essentially got a cease to assess letter from The Secret and wanting to sue us. So I stopped making that film, and I made my first feature length documentary El Huaso, which is where I met Pablo. And Pablo came in um, around halfway uh, of that project. And El Huaso is a personal documentary. It's a very personal documentary about my father and my family and how uh, my father essentially uh, self-diagnosed himself with Alzheimer's in order to justify his own euthanasia. Uh, and 
an incredibly personal film. Um, and in a lot of ways, the place where me and Pablo got to know each other in terms of sound and and what we talked a lot about sound. Sound was like a really sort of like important element. I always looked at sound as a sort of in these three parts where it was, for me, it was the image, music, and then sound. Like I, I always like looked at, the, I always treated the film with that sort of equality, which and I don't you're think... You're saying you were thinking in those three ways as you were conceptualizing your shoots before, and stuff like that? Yeah, before even uh, principal photography. Like I, I, I would just watch all these documentaries and, and, and the sound was just horrific and I, I didn't really understand why that was necessary. And uh, and then, and then I, you know, Pablo and I, we would talk and have these like long talks about sound and the, the idea of the fact that if you don't notice the sound, then you've done a good job as a sound person. And I guess that was sort of like a starting point. And then essentially when I finished El Huaso, the family called me up and they're just like, Carlo, we have this, you know, this thing's happening and, and uh, we've Gregory Grabovoy and we want to resurrect a son from the dead. Like, do you, do you want to do it? We should make the, start making the documentary over again. And then at that point, Pablo and I had, you know, had just premiered the film at RIDM in Montreal in 2011. And we started shooting, I guess, shortly after that, around that period of time in the Metro. And actually one of the first, the first scene, no, the second scene, uh, one of the scenes in the Metro um, where they're bickering and arguing is probably one of the first things that we ever shot. And, um, and that's when we really started realizing how important sound was going to be in this film and how we actually wanted to, conceptualize it because they're essentially a blind family and and it, and it started when I made that that you know that film in second year and I just didn't have the knowledge the tools or the experience to have the layered and sophisticated sound that we I think hope achieved yeah. hopefully achieved with resurrecting Hassan yeah so I saw uh, El Huaso when you premiered in Toronto 2011 yeah uh, and obviously that film maybe because it was a personal film like there was a real collection of different types of footage right and obviously different types of audio recordings to yeah. go with it when you guys were on like the more organized shoots in that film i gather that you must have like worked out a way for the two of you to work together mm -hmm. that um, maybe you carried through into making the second uh, absolutely yeah absolutely i mean like it was I mean, Pablo served more. He was, he's not just the sound recordist in the film at all. Like, you know, him and I would talk about, um, you know, the content. We would talk, I mean, I don't know how to speak French. Like, my French is restaurant French. And Pablo's French is, is, uh, is he speaks fluent French. Kitchen French. Kitchen, yeah, I speak, yeah. He, he, I guess he speaks more like kitchen French. I speak restaurant French. And uh, so Pablo had a more of an idea, but because I knew the family, I knew what they were talking about. But him and I would have cues while we were shooting of like when I could move the camera. We knew the content that we wanted because they lived all the way out east, you know, uh, Montreal. So we had to drive out there. It was like a half an hour drive at least. And on the way, we would talk about essentially what our objective was for that particular shoot. Right. And so we both had a really clear understanding on like what we wanted to um, capture and sort of um, come from like that specific shoot yeah. in content wise. So just to be clear, like your, your crew on most of the days that you shot with the family was the two of you just the two of us yeah yeah, yeah there were a there was, few there days was where we had a Jessica Diamond was a was mm -hmm. would serve there as like a as a associate producer and helped us a lot in terms of the aiding and then there was also um sometimes there was a second camera person uh, Paul who was a uh, intern with us and he uh sometimes was second camera and sometimes and, and actually Pablo actually helped uh, and taught him a lot and he did maybe a couple shoots with sound when Pablo couldn't yeah so if I can just describe like maybe one scene in the film sure. where I sort of was stopping and thinking like, okay, what is going on 
from a filmmaking perspective right here. So the couple, the mom and dad and the family, are yeah. lying in bed right. um, and kidding around. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's, it seems to be night, <laughs> and it's a very intimate scenario. And uh, I'm just like, okay, so where is everybody right now? And what's going on? And how do you get mics on people when they're going to bed? And, like, this sort of thing. So, like, this something that's really striking about the film is how incredibly intimate it is. And I was just like, I never had a sense of the mechanics of either the camera work or the sound work. It, it's very transparent in that sense. So I think that's one yeah. of the things I really admire about the film is how transparent the sound collection aspect of it is. So I think maybe that's sort of a techie question about your choice of labs and, uh, you know, what are the what were the challenges um, in getting, like, good clean sound? Or maybe it was more of a challenge for post in mm-hmm. trying to, like, homogenize all of your, of your uh, reels. Yeah. Um, we had basically two different approaches. Um, this is a family that has a tendency of bickering and talking on top of each other quite a lot. Um, So it was necessary on one side to be able to capture all three of them as isolated from each other as possible. So uh, we used a lot of labs, indeed. Um, The process was basically we would show up and the first thing we would do is mic them up uh, um, while we were getting ready to shoot with them and while we were talking to them about what what wanted we wanted to uh, do that day what kind of labs did you use <laughs> um i've been using for that film i was using um dpa microphones capsules and running them through uh electrosonics you can, you uh, transmitters <laughs> yeah um you know kind of standard uh professional microphones um I was using, sometimes I would use the Sankin COS11, which are another standard um, lav mic, uh, very common in uh, film production. Um, and uh, But I found that the DPA was a little bit more um, pleasing to my ears. <laughs> um, but the second approach was uh, for those um, more intimate situations um, where obviously they were not wearing any shirt. Like there's another scene where we're in uh, in a park uh, right after they're in the pool and they're, they're not wearing shirts. And so for that, I was I was using a, a boom microphone. Uh, so uh, I mainly, mainly used a, a Sennheiser microphone, the MKH-50, which is my go-to mic um, for 80% of what I do. And, um, and so those were like the approaches, like very simple when we were on on-site shooting. Like as a sound recorder, um, whether it's documentary or fiction, your main objective or your job really is to capture dialogue as clean as possible. Yeah. And, um, and my sense with this film is probably once you got to post, that gave Carlo a lot of flexibility in what he was able to do in terms mm-hmm. of spatializing yeah. characters. Because yeah. uh, the initial part of the film... You've got the the dad Denis is in one room, and the daughter is in another room. And as the perspective cuts back and forth, yeah. uh, you're able to um, kind of play with how yeah. the sounds, trying to make it sort of a realistic sound of like going back and forth. From yeah, room there's to a room. real delicate balance in that because I think um, generally sound mixers want to keep everything in the center when there's dialogue, but I I really I, it was important for me to get a sort of sense of space. Um, where they actually were so it was a it was there's definitely two people pulling each other where it was me wanting to get a more uh rounded and um and and 
just getting a, a more of a 360 perspective of like where they actually like were as opposed to the person is you know this is the person we're we're filming them and it's and set, and we're mixing center but i wanted it to come from like completely different areas and and to really put things in in the pocket when we were uh, mixing the 5.1 um you know i would i would i stood i was standing up for most of the mix if we weren't actually doing um editing or like reverb like i was walking around and i was listening to each i i i love um you know, 5.1 studios that have uh, pocket speakers and that don't have like, you know, a bunch of speakers like sort of surrounding you. You can see. Yeah. You can see like I actually like going to the singular speaker and hearing the pocket. Yeah, okay. And then and then the, and that the mix is so good that you can actually f that you can actually feel it somewhere in the middle when you're editing it. Like I, that was really sort of important for this specifically because it was important to to very uh, to be very specific where we placed all of the sound design, all of the um all of the the, the dialogue it, um, uh, to sort of create that soundscape. Yeah, I, I'm going to come back to that because I I'll maybe make this conversation kind of go in the order of production. Absolutely, sure, for sure. Because uh, I definitely want to talk to you about how your film ends up sounding right, in right. theaters. Um, but I guess the other thing, uh, I mean, that's the your relationship, you know, as the sound guy. Uh, who's on every shoot like consistently through the process? I think is is the ideal, but it's very rare that that ever manages to play out, especially on a shoot that goes on for this long and maybe doesn't have a huge budget and stuff like that. They were really isolated shoots too. Like it was like it was kind of like okay, Pablo, when are you available this yeah. time, this period of time? Yeah, okay. okay, let's go there. Like I, it was, I mean, you know, and Pablo. We're, I don't feel bad about saying this and he doesn't feel bad. Like it was mostly around like his schedule. And that was really important to me because mm -hmm. I only, I only wanted to work with him. And when I didn't work with him, I, I missed him. Yeah. Like when he wasn't there, because you, you know, you just have like a, it's a rapport that you sort of have, um, you know, and quite literally when you have a snake, you're attached to each other. <laughs> yeah. Like if you're working with a snake. And, <laughs> that was a El Waso. Oh, yeah, El Waso. I, I don't want to talk working. about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I remember. Um, luckily, we don't have snakes uh, attaching us uh, anymore. But um, I think the um, the job of the sound recordist uh, goes uh, beyond, especially in documentary, goes beyond um, the technical aspect. Oh, 100%. Uh, and I feel that uh, that that's what makes you gives you value as a as an artisan or even uh, as part of the uh, creative uh, team um, for me it's very important that I have um, that I can gain the trust of the of the director and the cameraman um, but also that they understand that I am in the same team as they are um, in film production and uh, TV, there is certain like uh, animosity between cameramen and soundmen um, <laughs> that is not necessary. Um, but but I just want to say but, that yeah, from your lips <clears throat> to God's ears, <laughs> <laughs> it is unnecessary. But it's normal. And but I, what I want to say is that I, I was also very lucky, and I and then this, that's the reason I work with Carlos because I he does understand sound in a. a and he does uh, take into account that aspect of, of the film very, um, he doesn't take it lightly. Yeah. So he's very always um, open to uh, listening to, you know, suggestions and um, he can talk the same language uh, when it comes to um, to sound. So 
even though we don't always see eye to eye. <laughs> and um, from my experience with him in El Waso, uh, uh, I, I didn't always trust him. Um, but then... Yeah, I, I definitely had to... I had to and, and, I, and I was okay with that for the most part, um, but I definitely had to win over Pablo's trust mm-hmm. uh, for El Waso. But I think I did too. And that's yeah. what the relationship... Uh, you know, after we did... Uh, I saw El Waso, I said, this is a person that... Um, not only understands uh, how to create a good sounding film, but also understands filmmaking. And I'm, I, I would be proud to be part of his projects. Um, in that sense, I was uh, lucky that he, uh, he felt uh, the same way towards me and, uh, and that we were able to collaborate with this film. Um, so I, was, I always felt that I was the Sancho Panza for yeah. uh, the Don Quixote, you know. <laughs> uh, but but definitely, just to wrap it up, uh, uh, it was a, it was a pleasure working with him, and also going back to the the intimacy that was portrayed in the film uh, towards the subjects. These people are people are well, Denis and uh, Peggy and Livia are people that are not only very special, but they are. Uh, perhaps it's their blindness. I don't know what it is, but they are not as self-conscious as a normal person would be. Yeah. And it allowed Carla to get really close to them and almost on top of them. Yeah. I won't tell you when, but like literally, yeah. there were moments where he was actually on top of them yeah. uh, to get a, an interesting uh, shot. And, and that closeness, well, it allowed me also to get close to them. And they're very playful too. Yeah, they're very playful like um, they have an intense sense of humor, mm-hmm. and, and yeah, they're like Pablo. I think for the most part, I you always were laughing. You always were crying, like mm-hmm. between takes, like yeah. before. Mm-hmm. I mean, they think they're in, were insane, you know, uh, in for terms wanting of, to for wanting to make do the film? yeah for that long period of time right. for like the shots that we wanted for like you know Pablo the mic placing all like everything that we that we sort of like did. Um, they didn't understand it fully, but there was definitely like a deep trust. Mm-hmm. I know many documentaries I've seen. Those super intimate shoots or shots even, that's where the sound falls apart. And the filmmakers are always kind of like, well, we're just going to put this in and it's it's crappy, but we really love this scene and we're going to put it in anyway. And that's what struck me is that even in the kind of very unusual setups, the sound quality remained consistent. So that's – yeah, I, that's, I mean, that, honestly, that's Pablo. Give all, you like, credit for that. that beyond really credit. And the thing is, is that he's, you know, we're all Canadians and we're all very self-deprecating and we don't know how to receive compliments. But like, I, I think like, um, and and why, and what the, what we do share in common is that we're both complete perfectionists. Like we're, we're never satisfied like with what we do. Um, and uh, sometimes... We have to we have to like pretty much like tell each other like no it's actually this this is actually great like I think you're you're uh, you're being a bit much on this like right. the, there was a scene obviously uh, which is like the anchor of the film um, where I won't give too much away but essentially it's a fight and so there's a lot of screaming going on and uh, we caught that fight purely by accident and uh, I to this day Pablo obsesses with the fact that Denise's jacket was closed. You know, and that the microphone that it was too muffled and bassy, but you know, and I've told him at least a dozen times that like uh, because he, the screaming was so loud that I actually think that the the jacket in the inside 
um, actually stopped from saved, from, saved from some a lot of cr- uh, peaking, <laughs> saved it from like some maybe, peaking. I don't know. Maybe. I don't, yeah. <laughs> well, anyways, this is me trying to be optimistic and make yeah, Pablo yeah. feel better because somebody had be, to because do because yeah. well, be, no, but more most importantly, like overall, because we were so so lucky that Pablo had put on the labs on them uh, before even arriving to the metro because that was like a moment that happened in less than 20 minutes and it went faster than you can imagine. And it was very, very intense. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it was like, it was just one of those things. It was like, we, you know, we were just really lucky that Pablo put the labs before we, uh, we yeah. even went and there. And that scene really like, it just sends you into a different layer of yeah. experience watching the film. Yeah. It took me, it took me many months to emotionally get over that, yeah. uh, being a part of that. Scene. I think I, I'm throughout like the time I've been doing this, I've learned that, when you're doing a documentary, uh, it's about casting a net and then fishing. It's almost like fishing. And the sooner you cast that net, the more chances you get to actually catch something. That's a really great way of putting so, it. So basically, uh, and, and that's what I try to do with when I come into a, a shoot like, like this one is you have to be ready very soon in the process and be alert and be there to capture what happens in front of you. Because yeah. although we did, um, uh, you know, there was a little bit of a chat with them before each shoot, and, you know, they we told them what we wanted to do. But most of the time, we were always surprised with, with what we got. Yeah, It was because we were actually going through the effort of uh, yeah. casting that net Properly. I'll tell uh, you what the payoff for me watching the film is, is that my sense of the film is that it was all very much for real. Like uh, the transparency between what we're seeing and what is being being experienced in the room or whatever is, I, don't, I didn't have any sense. I didn't question at any moment, did they make yeah. this up or did they stage this or, or did they restage this? Yeah. I never had that sense of it. That, and that's um, the and that's the trick, right? I mean, you, you, there is a, a a notion of manipulation um, when you're making films, and it's a bit of a magic trick. I love watching films where you're where you get lost inside of this world, and I find always when there's this like other element or this sort of production element, which you know some people would say that it's authentic, but I'm a storyteller. I'm not trying to, you know, uh, maintain a sort of like ethical boundary within like the you know the confines of what uh, cinema is like i'm i want to tell a story the story is first and i want people to engage and and stay within that story in the best way possible although there are some films that i like uh, that you know that you do hear the the director and you know there it is talking heads i I am just not interested in making those films at all whatsoever yeah and you knew that right from the get-go absolutely yeah Yeah. i mean el juas is the same thing just to add to that, um, there's a difference between something being real and something being true. You know, there it can be staged or it can be put together after the fact or um, yeah. whatnot. But if it captures the truth of the moment or the, the situation, um, then it, it is still a valid form of documentary. Yeah, Absolutely. and if you can convince the people watching, yeah. Mm-hmm. That that's if it's believable, yeah, they don't but question it. Yeah, what keeps you grounded ethically, I think, is that you are actually not 
making up anything. You're 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 stating a truth. Or you're you're mm-hmm. encapsulating a truth. Earl Morris, Werner Herzog, they would say the exact same thing. Like that's the school that I come from. The idea that uh, cinema verite is for losers, which is what Herzog says often, <laughs> and that uh, I don't want to be the fly in the wall, but the hornet in the room. You know, like you're a director, direct a film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like this whole idea of like fly on the wall, it's bullshit. Like it's complete nonsense. Yeah, especially, I mean, just in the sound context when... Completely. That, oh my God, yeah. What comes along with that is sort of a almost laissez-faire attitude to pre-planning yeah. the technical side. Yeah. It's and like, let's just go, grab and go. That's the thing that Pablo actually taught me in my first film in El Huaso that we always got into some, in the beginning, like some arguments about was that he was like, this is your family. You have a relationship with them. Let's take our time. Let's set up, cast that net, as Pablo would say, and let's do it. And and so with Resurrecting Hassan, we didn't even, that wasn't even a question. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things that I learned about the most is pacing and timing. And uh, I mean, your, your sound guy is like your bass player. Like he just like... He, hold, he, like, he just keeps the rhythm down and he just sets the tone. And a good sound person is not just a great technician. They're, they're like, you know, pop psychologists. They're mediators. They're, um, they're, they work with different, like, personalities. Like, you, you know, a, a great technical sound person is a dime a dozen. It's, it's all about the personality. And that's how you, people get rehired. And it's the collaboration. And it's, like, how they're sort of, like, willing to work and... Um, it's that chemistry. So that, that's, that was like, you know, incredibly uh, essential. Although we did, you know, I just was resistant because although I, I wanted, you know, great sound, but I was, you know, I was making my first film with El Huaso. And so I was just really sort of enthusiastic and, you know, the sun and I was just all these sort of like elements. But with the family, um, it was a lot more controlled. There was a lot, a lot more control. Even though it was intense, what we were sort of like talking about, the, the scenes were very strategic and they were very much like done, you know, like, okay, we know that Peggy and Denis are fighting right now. Mm-hmm. You know, they've been fighting. We know what we're going to go into. We know how we're going to set it up. We know that they go to this diner, and we know that we're going to have something. Um, and then they just start talking, uh, and then and then the questions come in, you know, like as I was saying, and obviously we edit that out, and you don't hear the voice, but they stay within, like, the moment. And a lot of that is attributed to Pablo. Like, um, yeah, he, he will stop. And I... and. This sounds horrible. I guess I am the director, but because I, it's such a collaborative process, but I will allow him to stop mm-hmm. and to just be like, hold on, I got to reposition a mic. Yeah. And that, those are just some of the things that I think like some directors are just really, on uh, Spanish you say maniatico, what like, um, like just like really... Maniacal. Maniacal, I guess, yeah. <laughs> or just like really, um, uh, you know, just unwilling and, and not willing to, to do that, to stop a scene for a lav adjustment. Yeah, it's kind of um, a misplaced priority in a way. Yeah, and yeah. I think, like, that's just, you know, that uh, to me, especially when we were making a film about a blind family, I mean, that it, it was just as much as, like, if my lens fogged up, you know, like, you can't see anything. My lens is fogged up. I have to clean it. We have to stop. It's the same idea. Thank you for saying this. <laughs> yeah. No, and, and, th- and, that's, and that's the reason why I was so, like, stoked to do this is because you just don't have the opportunity to talk about this stuff. Everybody wants to talk about the photography. Everybody wants to talk about the story and the family and the emotion and all that stuff. But we spent eight months on the film uh, doing the sound from Foley to, uh, to sound design to mixing. Really, it was like a, an intense labor of love. Yeah, I do want to talk about that for sure. I think in the Q&A after the screening I saw yesterday, um, one thing you said was, I didn't set out to make a film about blind people. 
so that uh, in the sort of thematic aspect of the film is not it's not it's not a film about blind people not at all uh, but the the experience of their blindness and visual impairment is really folded into the craft of the film and the sound specifically yeah uh, you mentioned that you uh, in preparing to make the film had done a blind walk yeah I did a, a blind walk oh, I forgot the artist's name but he did at the Bibliothèque Nationale in, in Montreal um he uh, did this installation piece where essentially he got blind people to lead sighted people around the city and the sighted people would put on blindfolds. And this is, I did this like in my second year. It was one of the reasons why I wanted to make this film with the family, like in my second year in film school. And, and it was just an unbelievable experience because it, it basically flipped everything on its head. Like I was more scared in the metro in the sort of safety of the metro than I was walking in traffic. And it had everything to do with the reverberation of your voice and how it bounced off the walls and the claustrophobia of that and the claustrophobia of the space and what I could run into and what I could like fall down. But in the streets, everything, there was just such an ample sort of beautiful, rich textures of layers. And and because they were so competent in, in walking by themselves, you had to just trust them. So it was just an incredible introduction to to going into that world. And I always referred back to that. And I, I to be honest, I, I wish I, I, I would just do that, you know, every six months as a practice to just yeah, be I led like by a blind a person. Great exercise for. Yeah, it was incredible. Thank you, oh, okay. Francisco Lopez. That, that was our engineer giving us that name. Yeah. Uh, a great experience for any visual aside crew or director to do something like that, just to kind of wake them up to yeah. what they're unconscious of. Um, but that idea of claustrophobia and the closeness is such a big part of the feeling of the film. And yeah. like, obviously, it comes from the visuals for sure, but also in the soundtrack, there's um, ways in which you mixed the film mm-hmm. uh, that I found created that. Like, I, I walked out of the film and I had a hard time getting down the stairs. Like, I was filled with anxiety. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, it was a very <laughs> visceral experience. <laughs> No, I think it's good. Uh, yeah, well, it, for us masochists, maybe. But it's just like, uh, you know, it's like... I, it's, um, I think in terms of the blindness or the experience of people with visual impairment, you know, we, you know, as sighted people, we'll never know. But I think the the way in which you made that a part of the experience of watching the film was very useful to, to like you say, to get that sense of empathy for yeah. those characters. Well, I wanted the I to be honest, I wanted the audience to judge the family as they would judge them if they saw them on the street and whether they thought they were, you know, and I wanted them to have a harsh judgment of them um whether it was positive or negative and I wanted to um play with that and change that that by the end of the film I hope that people um construct at least a a level of sympathy but hopefully a level of empathy and see themselves in the characters. That, and that was the, the, the premise for the sound treatment. That was the objective for the sound treatment is for them, is for the audience to sort of experience that. And I think a lot of people who watch documentaries weren't really, aren't really ready for that experience. Like when we premiered in Amsterdam, I had this like DOP who I thought was going to punch me because he was so just distraught by th- that he had never heard a documentary like sound like that. Like he was so confused by like, 
how much he liked the sound and like it was such a weird experience because I was like kind of a bit afraid of that he was gonna like attack me or something because <laughs> he was just so like uh, it was just so he was just so intense I, little into the conversation I realized that he was giving me a compliment but he was really abrasive what was he like what was it that he was uh, the the quality like you were talking about the consistency but then also just the like the layering of, of the sound and the subtleties and the nuances like I'm not one of those people like you have to watch this in the theater but like it's not that you have to watch this in the theater watch it at home but if you can watch it like you should watch it in 5.1 with decent speakers because it's just it's just worth it I mean we we worked on the sound probably longer than we actually ended up on editing the film well. You were editing the film uh, <laughs> in your head and on, oh, that's true. on yeah. the computer for as no, long as you were shooting For sure. It. But one of the things that I wanted to talk about and bring up that mm-hmm. we hadn't like, you know, talked is that we use quad mics as well. Okay. And we use binaural mics too. We did do, use a bit of binaural yeah. uh, recording. So but what recordings. situations did you use different um, Well, the binaural part was uh, at certain points, Carlo gave them GoPros. Right. So it was their POV. Okay. So there was that. Yeah. Um, there was that, without giving too much away, and um, we used uh, two stereo pairs to go around every single location that we shot at um, to capture ambience. Yeah. Um, Some of the subway ambiences are really. Like, yeah. They were yeah. almost musical, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that. Um, I think so too. Again, Carlo. Carlo. <laughs> Because he feels so, he's so involved with all of the process of making the film. When it comes to, uh, and this was a bit of an argument that we had, but <laughs> I told Carlo, you got, you got to get someone to do your sound design. This is a big film, and he, he didn't. He, he didn't yeah, budge. so you alluded. So yesterday. I wanted to do it with Pablo. Basically, yeah. I wanted us to. I, I wanted us to collect it. I wanted us. I, I didn't trust someone to just come in. There just wasn't a sound designer mm-hmm. in Montreal that I could trust to to do it. No, mm-hmm. I, no one, no one had convinced me. I didn't want to. Um, obviously, it was a bit of a learning process too because we were learning through it, and uh, you know, we did a lot of like uh, we workshopped a lot of those, like the the quad mics as well, and what worked and what sounded mm-hmm. best. But and I think Corey is probably one of the most um, underrated uh, sound mixers uh, in Canada. For just sure. interject you. Corey Corey Rizzo's Rizzo's is this re-recording mixer. Like, let me just take a little bit of time to talk about his process. He mixes and does the sound design at the same time. Okay. He pans the whole thing. He does a whole pass of the film like that. I don't know anybody that does that. Maybe they are. I've never met them. And who does it as well as he does. And uh, he is also credited to adding that sort of musical textural sound. And um, it was a really nice balance of, you know, three people who uh, really love sound and appreciate sound, the the credit for the sound design is the three of us okay. because it was done at different stages and we both sort of like came in at different stages. And I don't know if it was the most productive, but it was definitely um, yeah, how I it, wanted to work. Like often in like a non-independent or a larger scale production or in series work, like you have to streamline one thing happens and then the next thing happens yeah. and you never go back like, yeah. or you mm-hmm. try and avoid going back and I find when I've worked with filmmakers who are I would call them artists yeah, as filmmakers they really struggle with that idea that okay now we're done with that and now we're going to move forward and there's always like this resistance like no we need to come back and change 
because yeah. now I see something different and oh. I want to go back and change and, and figuring out that workflow in a way that doesn't stifle the creative process and yet is not completely mind-bogglingly inefficient well, is a real tough one. Absolutely. And that's one of the big fights that Corey and I got into because there was a lot of like intensity, you know, like when you're going to focus this much on something, it, uh, it, you're going to have disputes. And one of them was that like that he got really frustrated is that I wanted to stop like ferment two months, listen to it, get my notes, really understand what I wanted to and not waste time with like in the studio. So he had a tough time like because he wasn't used to that workflow and I totally um, sympathized with him because he'd, he had never worked that way before. And um, he had to, every time, you know, we started the session again, like, you know, a month or two or three weeks later, he would have to, uh, like, you know, we had like 150 tracks. Like he would have to like, familiarize himself reorient and himself, reorient yeah. himself where everything is. And, and it was a really tough job for him. And, it was, and it's to his credit, um, even if it was like uphill battle for both of us, that that happened. Having said that, if there's directors out there, your sound is only going to be as good as how much you push your mixer. Like With, without breaking them. <laughs> well, yeah, without breaking them. Exactly. And it's, and honestly, like, and there's ways of doing it. And I think it's funny because Corey and I had a conversation. And I don't know if, if, if it's right for me to say this, but well, we'll just say that Corey's just very proud of the film that's playing at Hot Docs, and he really champions the this film, and he has other films that are at Hot Docs as well. And I think, you know, recently I spoke with him, and I think he had a sort of a moment where he was like, it's conflicting because it's just like, how much do you, you know, how much do you put of yourself into it? How much are you willing to struggle to achieve this thing, you know, in sound? Um yeah, you have to be a little crazy, and but you definitely have to uh, push a lot, and you have to be pushing each other. Corey pushed me a lot, and mm -hmm. I pushed him, and Pablo pushed me, and vice versa. Like you, you just have to constantly be like knowing like what you have. Uh, yeah, it was uh, definitely like a labor of love, and I, you know, I it, we can now look back on it and, and be really really proud of it. But uh, we definitely pushed each other. Yeah. So the one thing that I, I left out to Corey's credit that he really pushed for, and I'm glad that we did it, was three days of foley. Mm -hmm. Okay. That was insane. Mm -hmm. I don't have the name. I'm just going to say it was great Foley because the word Foley never floated through my brain oh my once God. while watching the film. It was just... Alexis Ferrand. Thank you so much, Pablo. One of the best One of the Montreal. best Foley people in Montreal and definitely for me, like, mm -hmm. in Canada. Like, I, I honestly, he is... Uh, I'm spoiled. I'm spoiled because my, on my first film, I worked with Corey. And on my first Foley, I worked with... Alexi. With Alexi. And it was just incredible. Like, I was, it was magical. It was like picking up a camera for the first time, like the moment of feeling. Like, I almost get, like, emotional talking about it because it was just, like, I just couldn't believe what was actually going on. And, like, he would do the sound and he would, like, talk back to Corey and be like, okay, three frames uh, to the front, through four frames to the back. Like, it was just magic. It was, like, watching magic. It was like watching, you know, a Disney film get made. It was unbelievable. And and it added a lot to the textures of that and having that that sort of oral, full-bodied um, sound that the that the film has. Yeah. Uh, just to, um, to add a little bit to, like, the process. Um, so, Carlo, from the beginning of the editing, while he was editing the picture, um, the sound design was going on and the effects were going in. Um, then we went out and gathered ambiences. Uh, we put them on the timeline. Carlo finished that. Um, the other part that was very important and also to speak to the consistency of, uh, of the location sound, uh, Corey did the dialogue edit. And That's he right. did a really, really good job at, you know, making sure that whatever wasn't, 
clean cleaned it up and so that there was space to put more stuff on top. That's right. I forgot about that. We and, did. We did uh, and, ADR. We did some ADR. We did a little bit of ADR, yeah. a couple of things here and there. Uh, all the VOs were recording in my car, which is a great uh, sound booth. <laughs> in the middle of winter. In the middle of winter. <laughs> yeah, like, like Lovia's... Uh, like Livia's, like the her voiceover when she's underwater. Yeah, yeah. that's that was done yeah. in public. Uh, uh, just to, to clarify, if you haven't seen the movie, there are a couple of VOs from the uh, uh, our um, yeah, so the like characters are telling their story. Very short sequences yeah. that yeah. are more kind, kind of, of take you off a little bit. Yeah. Um, and then the fu- the process of mixing it all was also going on as the sound design was going on. Okay. I don't know if you've ever been in the Montreal metros, but they're the loudest. You you can't have an actual conversation on the metro. Mm-hmm. And the magic that Corey did by cleaning that up, and not only that, but like he cleaned it up so well, we were able to add other metro sounds yeah. to the metro sound to mm-hmm. give it what you were talking about. That's yeah. the, that sort of like, you know, layered um, texture and how it was like almost musical. And um, yeah, Corey Rizzo's. Yeah, cool. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. So uh, mixing the film in 5.1 was really important to you. Very much. Uh, the last time I talked to you and when we first mm-hmm. met was after screening El Paso in Toronto yeah. where we had a long conversation about Very, LTRT and how oh. it sucks. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I assume that was on your radar. Yeah. Um, you, you, I, I swear to God, I know we spoke for a short period of time, but you came up in my head more times than you actually think you probably <laughs> okay. did. Because of that conversation. And that's what, for, for DCP, that's what's so incredible about it, is that, you know, with DCP, you don't have to deal with all that garbage yeah, and that nonsense. Yeah, that's what I want to touch on is um, generally, like, especially with an independent film, you don't have a lot of money. Like, you don't have a lot of opportunities to test screen and stuff like this. So you mm-hmm. maybe, I don't know how big the, the studio you mixed in or the stage you mixed on was, yeah. um, but knowing what the film is going to actually sound like in a theater is always kind of a bit of a black box. Yeah. In your first experience seeing it in a theater Awful. as projected by somebody else was... Awful. Yeah. Awful. There was even a point where I had to, because uh, Corey wasn't available, and I had to bring in someone else to do to boost certain scenes, like bringing it up two dBs <laughs> on certain uh, pockets or certain scenes. And um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was too low, and I needed it to pop, and I needed it to be... Not loud enough that you're obviously, but it, you had to feel it. It had to rattle you. Yeah, and I would say in the film, like, there's specifically the scenes where Denis and Lovia, his daughter, are singing in the metro. Right. I, I don't know how much of this was the theater we were in yesterday, which was a big cineplex theater. Yeah. And how much of it was creative choice by you. But to me, those were um, kind of blowing you back. A little bit, yeah. And I don't was going to ask you like if that was the deliberate, yeah, part I, of the film. Definitely, and I wanted. Um, Do you think it was too loud? Would you have turned it down? A bit? I was. Uh, no, I was like, this is this is on purpose, right? Like, yeah, you're yeah, trying totally. to, You're trying to like push us a little yeah, bit. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like, I obviously I don't want it to pop, and I don't want to like you know I wanted it to sound nice, but I definitely wanted you to uh, be rattled by. Um, it's their soul. That's how they express themselves. And I didn't want it to be to be soft and I didn't want to coddle you. And I wanted you to feel their pain. Yeah. And and that was essential. And uh, Corey, man, the, we definitely had arguments about how loud I wanted to go. Um, the, one of the first things that you hear in the scene, it, for me, it's still not loud enough. But when like the, the, the medium, she sniffs and she goes, 
Like she just like、yeah. she she wakes up, man. I wanted that thing to just scare the shit out of you. <laughs> like I wanted that to be like almost like a horror movie. I it, jumped. Good, good. <laughs> no, okay, good. I I I was scared when I recorded that. <laughs> I was not <laughs> just explain to people they the fa- the family visits a medium、yeah. who is、um, channeling exactly、uh, some spiritual being,、yeah. and the way she expresses herself is very startling. <laughs> yeah, and the way well, it's it's initially it's how she wakes up. It's like this big. Inhale or this big sniff, and I like turned it up. We added like you know some 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 sound. I I really wanted that to pop. I wanted people to get scared and to just kind of like jump themselves into from like this sort of like beginning kind of like like dream state、uh, that we were going into, and that it was like okay, this is go time. Yeah, and the fight, and as well the fighting、yeah. as, at the end as well. As I definitely like, I wanted Denise first yell, and I wanted his last yell to just destroy you. Like I wanted it to just like punch you in the gut. I mean, I grew up in the hardcore punk rock scene. You know what I mean? Like, I, that's just that's where I came from. Like, blood, sweat, and tears. Like, I, I, that's that's my background. Like, you know what I mean? Like, what would Ian do? Like, that's you know, that's 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 what I grew <laughs>、totally. up. I grew up on Minor Threat and 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 like that whole world. And you know, like, I, it's so funny. The best fucking compliment that I got on the film. Was this、uh, was this French Chilean filmmaker that came up to me who st- who saw it in Amsterdam was so disturbed he's like, oh my god, Carlo, your film is it's it's so punk, and I was just like, all right, that's good, I'm done, thank you everyone, I'm going home. That's that was the best compliment I could ever get. Yeah, that's yeah, that's great.、Um, yeah, you did make a, sorry, you did make somebody's nose bleed. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Oh my God! There's this there's this producer in Montreal、um, who Pablo had a conversation with a long conversation with yesterday while we were waiting around and、uh, she saw the film and she told Pablo that that when she gets like too emotional or too overwhelmed she gets nosebleeds and、uh, it only happens a few times in her life. <laughs> so she got. I was like, oh, these are just these are just the compliments that I just like they go like straight to my heart. I'm just like、yeah. like it's just like I I was so emotionally moved that you made. Made my nose bleed. Well,、Love、I、it. can totally attest、mm-hmm. for that. Is just it's a very visceral film, but it's also <laughs> very smart、um, and sensitive relationship that you establish with the family. And yeah, I'm just really glad I got to see it.、Um, I was going to ask you about some of the pitfalls of festival screening. Yeah.、Um, I don't know if that's too down or a subject to、no. end on. I mean, the best thing that the the programs or the head of programming for the Chicago Film Festival、uh, said to me is that filmmakers. Always think their film should be louder, and the audience never complains that the film is too loud. Do you know what I mean?、Mm-hmm. So it's like you filmmakers always want it to just be like what I just basically explained, like loud, 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 big, 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 like intense. And audience members will never tell you that the film is uh, is uh, is too quiet. I don't know if I said that right, but、uh, <laughs> but the, the audience will never complain about the volume of the film.、Mm-hmm. Like、uh, because Hot Dogs is so great, I always have like、oh, so much faith in them. Like we didn't do a tech check. Yesterday, and from what I heard, I don't watch the film anymore. But from what I heard, it it sounded pretty good. So, and Pablo's seen many versions of it, so he said it it,、uh, it was on point. But tech checks are always really important to me. I always try to do them as best I can. In Latin America, one hundred percent. And I know, I mean, I'm from Chile. Pablo's from Colombia. We can talk shit about Latin America. <laughs> and、uh, like, you know, some festivals have their advantages and disadvantages. But there, some of their facilities aren't always the best, and so you have to like play with what you have. And yeah, so I definitely, definitely do tech checks down there. Yeah. So your film's been touring festivals for almost a year now. Uh, it's it November. It started in Amsterdam and、uh, oh, okay. in November, and、uh, it's still continuing.、Um, but it's definitely going to have a U.S. premiere. It's it's playing a lot in the Nordic countries in the fall. It's going to play in、um, 
Norway, as well as uh, it's having a theatrical release September 22nd, uh, 2017 in Montreal, in Quebec. Uh, cool. So the festival tour continues. Yeah. And um, if anybody's just interested in getting background on the film and following where your screenings are going to be, they can go to your website? Yeah, there's a Facebook page. They can look me up on Facebook. I post on there. I'll probably be your friend if you want and be my friend. <laughs> it's Carlo Guillermo Proto, uh, Resurrecting Hassan on Facebook as well, thehandshake.org. Uh, you can find information about Hassan there as well. Cool. And we'll post some links going along with, with uh, the trailer and stuff. stuff. Um, and fingers crossed, I guess, that uh, maybe you'll get picked up for a broadcast release or something great. along those lines yeah. at some point in the future. And um, we've been getting a lot of great critical reviews. Um, and there's been a bit of a buzz about the film. So it's a tough film to watch, but I think it's worth the investment if you can put yourself through the, the emotional uh, journey. Yeah, I think... If you have a proper love for film, you're up for that challenge. <laughs> yeah, hope so. Great. Well, Carlo, thanks so much for coming in. And Pablo as well. So it's really a great opportunity to have location recordist in on an interview. So thanks, guys. Thank you. Our, Thank you pleasure. for having us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks to everyone who listens and participates in the show. A huge thanks to Carlo Proto and Pablo Villegas for taking part in the discussion today. Keep an eye out for their film, Resurrecting Hassan, as it makes the rounds on the festival circuit. You can see the film's trailer on our website, tonemenderspodcast.com. Also, a big thanks to Teresa Morrow for jumping in and doing this interview for us. Thanks to Stacey Dupas for letting us bend and twist her voice on the bumpers. And finally, I want to thank Chris Gilbert for making the cool audio bumpers we've been using the last few episodes. You can find Chris via Twitter at Chris Gilb Audio. So that's Chris, C-H-R-I-S-G-I-L-B Audio. So Chris Gilb Audio. He's based in London, and you can see his reel at vimeo.com slash Audio. Thanks so much, Chris. If anyone else wants to make a bunch of three to five second transitions for us to use in the podcast, we can always use them. You can contact us at info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Okay, that's it for this episode. We have a really great stuff lined up over the next few months. I'm looking forward to getting it all out to you guys. Uh, we're having fun with this podcast now, so uh, thanks a lot. Keep listening. Thanks for listening to Tone Vendors. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you listen on iTunes or Stitcher, please write us a review while you're there. To support the show, go to ToneVendorsPodcast.com and click through our Amazon link or leave us a tip. You can also download and listen to our entire show archive there and leave a comment on our site or on SoundCloud. Keep up to date by following at the Tone Vendors on Twitter or find Tone Vendors Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Email us with your questions and ideas at info at tonevendorspodcast.com.